Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the text that Sharon read for us, Acts chapter 5. Uh, as you already heard, it's, it's a heavy passage. It's a weighty passage. You'll, you'll also notice the title of this morning's sermon is The Seriousness of Sin in the Church. And so um, we want to talk about that this morning. And I, I want to give a little bit of an intro to kind of catch up the context. I know many of you have not been with us through our whole Acts series. Some of you have, or you may have missed a week or two. So let me catch you up, and then we're going to dive into this passage. I know this particular text begs a lot of questions. In fact, it's one of the most controversial passages in the book of Acts. And some people would say, hey, if you're just going to do a survey of Acts, like we are doing, you know, we're not actually going to hit every single verse in the whole book of Acts for the sake of time. That would take us about three or four years to actually teach it through that way. So we're going to do a kind of a survey this year. If you're going to do a survey, why don't you skip this passage, right? There's nothing good here. It just raises more questions, maybe raises some fears that don't need to be uh, raised. I mean, it doesn't make God look very good. These are all the objections that you might hear about this passage. And that's precisely the reason that we're not skipping this passage. It's very important that we unpack this and answer some of these questions and also hear what the Spirit of God would have to say to us. Like literally, Fellowship, Bible Church, Franklin Campus in uh, November 2017 through this text. So here's a quick catch-up if you've missed some of our series on Acts so far. Chapters, uh, chapter 1 of the book of Acts is all about Jesus commissioning the church. And the well-known verse, we keep coming back to it, Acts 1.8, Jesus says, Listen, you, you men, my disciples, you are going to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to receive this power, and you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem first, then in the surrounding countryside, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the remotest parts of the earth. And that kind of sets the trajectory for the whole book of Acts. Chapters 2 and 3, we see the church actually birthed. And uh, what was sort of conceived by Christ in Acts 1-8 is now born. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. These spectacular things start happening. They're speaking in languages that they didn't know just, you know, five minutes before. And people are coming to Christ as they're hearing the message of God and seeing these miracles that are being done. And when they come to Christ, they're being baptized. You know, as, as Paige said, this is why we want to make that opportunity available again. We've had a number of you come up in the last couple of weeks and say, man, I, I've been a believer for a while, but I've never been baptized. I want to follow Jesus as a sign, you know, as a representation of my faith in Jesus Christ, and that was happening in this early church. We get to chapters 3 and 4, and opposition starts coming in against the church. And it starts from the outside. It starts from these religious rulers that are saying, you know, you can't be preaching the name of Jesus. And they, they tell the apostles to stop. The apostles do the exact opposite. You know, they say, listen, you have to deal with your own conscience before God. Our conscience before God says we cannot help but speak of the hope that we've been given in Jesus Christ. So the message continues out. And last week, uh, if you were here with us, Lloyd did a terrific job of unpacking one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. It tells this beautiful picture of how the church was sharing everything that they have. You know, there, it says there was nobody without a need because they were opening up their hands and they were just, when they heard of a need, they were meeting the need. And, and the application of that in, in this very creative way, you know, Lloyd's great at this, this type of illustrations. He passed around these baskets with these little blocks and, and some of the blocks had an A on them, which stood for abundance. And some of the blocks had an N, which stood for need. And whatever block you got, whatever Whatever uh, letter you got, that was just sort of given to you, right? And you had to meet the need. So if you had an N, you had to receive an, an A or an abundance. If you had an 
abundance. It was there to be given away to someone with a need. And then he said, all right, now it's going to get real. Take out your program, Lloyd said. And you have these needs cards in your program. And he encouraged you, any of you who have real life needs, to fill out one of these cards. And right now they're in the, the back in the, um, in the lobby. And I would encourage you, in fact, I would ask you before you leave today, stop by this sharing board, as we're calling it, and take a look and see if you can meet any of these needs. Uh, we pulled a few off just for me to read up here for the front to give you a sample of what's back there. And I'll go ahead and tell you, if there's anybody in the room that can meet any of these needs, seriously, you know, we're being very, very sincere here, come uh, after the service and I'd be happy to give you this card. If you can't meet any of these needs, but you'd like to meet a need this morning, go to that board on your way out and just grab one of these from the uh, clipboards and take it home. When you take a card, you're responsible for getting in contact with that person and doing the best you can to help them, serve them, meet their need whatever way you can. If you find that you're not able to meet that need, bring that card back to the church. Sometime this week or even the next Sunday, we'll put it back on the board and that way someone else can grab it. Let me read a few of these uh, th- this, this individual is a, a teacher, and she's asking for donations for my sixth grade classroom in a metro school, and she lists specific things that they need. And then also there's a second need on this card as well. Uh, this individual is going to have their 86-year-old father that's going to be staying with them in the, the, through the month of December and January. And they wonder if there's anyone that wouldn't mind coming uh, to visit, particularly if it was someone that was a, a senior adult that would come by and just spend a little bit of time uh, and, and be a, a local friend. Uh, while they are out working. So two very practical needs in this one card. Maybe you can meet one of those needs. Uh, This one says, uh, this is a different kind of need. I'm a leader in our fellowship student ministry to the eighth grade girls, and I need a co-leader. I'm leading by myself, and I really need some help. You know, here's someone that's saying, man, I'm I'm doing what we've just been talking about serving. I need someone to come alongside me and be a co-leader with these eighth grade girls. And then uh, one more need. This is a family... um, who uh, lost everything in a fire this past February. And there's some specific needs here that they have. And one of the things they need is all their decorations, their Christmas tree, all literally went up in smoke in February. And they're looking for someone to come alongside that might be willing to help them uh, during this Christmas time with some very practical needs. So there's a bunch more like this. And by the way, if you weren't here last week and you have a need, you haven't had a chance to fill this out, there are some blank cards there as well. So it's kind of like that have a penny, give a penny, need a penny, take a penny. I mean, we're trying to see what God will do the body of Christ in action, very similar to the early church. We have no idea what's going to happen with all this, but we've already been hearing some fantastic stories of what God is doing. So I'm extremely excited about what that is. We're going to leave that board back there for another uh, week or two, and we would love today to ask you to stop by and, and, uh, and take a look. Now, let's get back into this very serious text that we have this morning. Uh, What you see in the big picture here, and I just want to give you this as a way of context, and I'm going to read back through the text that Sharon already read for us. You see the big picture is this is a continuation of the opposition against the church, right? It started in chapter three. It's continuing now in chapter five. It's a continuation of the opposition against the church, but notice one big difference. This time, the opposition is not coming from outside the church. There's actually opposition in the church, Now, if you read closely, which we're obviously going to do, you'll see that the enemy of God, who is Satan, has actually been behind this. So there's a sense that he has injected into the early church itself a cancer. And we're going to see God sort of act in a very dramatic way to restore the health of the body, using this body metaphor very intentionally, so that the message of Christ can continue to spread. That's the big picture. Now, I actually want to back up two verses 
into chapter 4. So take a look at the last two verses of chapter 4 with me. We're going to put those on the screen as well because I want to give you context for Ananias and Sapphira. So look at 4, verse 36 and 37. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, you'll recognize his name, many of you will, by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, uh, why would Luke, the author of Acts, go out of his way right here to mention Barnabas? Well, first of all, it fits the previous context of people sharing and giving all they have, but really it's there as a foil or as a contrast for Ananias and Sapphira. So it sets up what's about to happen. Now, think about it. If you're a part of that church and you hear word of this huge gift by this man, Joseph, who... By the way, this is probably what led to him being called son of encouragement, Barnabas. Barnabas is going to go on to be a very significant character in the book of Acts. He's going to be a partner with Paul in in, in his his first missionary journey. And he's going to be very significant in this. God's going to use Barnabas significantly. It started from his generosity. So this was a significant known gift It was probably the largest gift the church had achieved up to that whole point. Luke's going out of his way to say, listen, this was given by Barnabas. Now look what was done in contrast to that. So we get into chapter 5, verse 1. Take a look. But, you see that little word of contrast? But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Verse 2, and kept kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid at the apostles' feet. Right? It's like he's, he's trying to look like Barnabas, but there's one big difference. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Uh, let's go on one more verse. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Let me pause there and explain what's going on. At first glance, it looks like the sin is greediness, right? Stinginess. He didn't give it all. But, but, but that actually is not what the real sin is. And you kind of see this play out in verse 4 that I just read. You'll see it in the rest of the passage as well. It, it wasn't that big a deal to not give the whole thing. What was the sin was the deception, you know, you see what Peter's calling out are the lies. You know, why have you lied about it? And you'll, you'll see as the, the passage continues, and you've already heard it, that the deal was they'd sold the price for such and such a price, and then they'd come to the church and said, here's what we got for it, and it was less. You see, they'd lied because they wanted to look like they'd given everything. It wasn't that big a deal about the fact that they didn't give everything, it was the deception behind it. It was the lie behind it. You'll see that play out even more in the next uh, few verses. Let's look at verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, Now, this is where you'll really see clearly what's going on here. Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. So it's obviously, you know, a paraphrase. He would have said, you know, 400,000 whatever, denarii or whatever it is. And she said, yes, that was the price. It wasn't the price, right? They had sold it for a lot more than that, and they kept the difference, and they're lying about it. And then uh, let's just finish the verse 11. 
Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Now, what kind of test is the Spirit of the Lord? The deception. Like, will God even himself be deceived here? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. Man, what a dramatic passage. They will carry you out as well. And then, of course, immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last. The young men came in, found her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And then verse 11 is kind of the the application, the, the kicker in the whole thing. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. I guess so. I bet it did. Now, uh, I want to go and kind of get the elephant out of the room at the very beginning. This passage is about sin. We realize that. There's no question. There's been a sin committed. I've already explained. We'll talk about it more. The primary sin was not the stinginess or the greed. That, That was kind of the surface level sin. The primary sin was the deception. And you have to ask yourself, why did they try to deceive? And the only reason you can kind of come up with of why they would lie of this is they wanted the status of Barnabas, right? He'd just been given a nickname, for goodness sakes, because of his encouragement, because of his generosity, because of his open-handedness. And I think they wanted the status of that. So the, the, big, the, the, the elephant in the room is, listen, why does God respond so harshly to the sin? Why did he have to kill them? And, and you know, the side question is, well, was it even God that killed them, so to speak? You know, uh, and a lot of commentators, as, as I've read over the last couple of weeks on this, they, they kind of work their way around this and they say, well, you know, I think it was probably just sort of a, a shock-induced heart attack. It, 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 someone had, had called out their, their sin, you know. And I'll just say this. Is that beyond the realm of possibility? Well, maybe not, but it's really hard to believe that that would happen to both of them. Three hours apart. And besides that, it's clear from the context and the reaction of the church that the church understood this to be... God doing some work here to bring about some judgment, to bring about, you know, to call someone to accountability or to do something. So, so the elephant in the room is, why would God, you know, the optics on this don't look good for God. Why would he respond this way? What is he really up to? And here's what I'd say about that, just to kind of begin to answer that question. Anytime you see something in Scripture that doesn't fit a pattern, and by the way, this text is certainly not normative, for the way that God deals with sin in the church, is it? In fact, I'd say it's not normative anywhere in the history of the church. It's not even normative in the book of Acts itself. This is the one time you see God take dramatic action like this in the whole book of Acts. So you can't build a pattern after this and say, man, the next time I lie, especially in church, I'm going to get struck down, okay? Don't build your theology off of the exception. But when you're reading Scripture and you see an exception, you see something that doesn't fit a pattern, your antenna should go up and you should say, what is God up to here? What is God up to and why? Why did he respond this way? Well, this is where I want to go in the message. In fact, as I've, I've studied this text, I, I've thought, you know, I think there's, there's at least three lessons about sin that we learn from this text. The, the actual account of these, this man and this woman and how God responded. Three lessons we learn about sin. And, and I'm going to take them one by one and I'm going to unpack the text as a way to explain the lesson, because all three of these lessons come straight from the text this morning. And as I go, I'm going to dig in a little bit to this elephant in the room question of what is God up to that he would react so severely, so harshly, if it is indeed God at work, which, which I believe it is. Here's lesson number one about sin. The sin in our lives plays out in the context of a cosmic spiritual war. 
The sin in our lives plays out in the context of a cosmic spiritual war. Uh, look again at verse 3 with me, all right? This is where, where I'm getting this from, kind of verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says this, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? Now, I want you to put yourself in Ananias' shoes or, you know, sandals or whatever they're wearing back then, all right? Chances are he had no clue Satan had anything to do with this, right? He, he was just being a little bit greedy for the prestige. He wanted to look like Barnabas, right? As far as we can tell, Satan didn't like show up to him in a dream and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. All this is going on behind the scenes, just like your sin and my sin. We don't think Satan has anything to do with our struggle with sin, if we're honest. And so Ananias gets called out by Peter, and Peter's essentially saying, look, Ananias, there's something bigger going on behind the scenes. Let me pull back the curtains and show you the reality that you have stepped into. It is a cosmic spiritual war. God has an enemy. The church has an enemy. And it's actually Satan that's behind the scenes at work to use you and your vulnerability through your greediness or through your pride or you know whatever this weak spot is that satan saw in ananias to use you to plant a cancer into the church you know so so here's what's going on at the spiritual level guys it's clear from the text the enemy of god saw a soft spot in the congregation of god and used that as a point of entry that's what peter is saying is going on so the irony is Ananias and Sapphira had aligned themselves publicly through baptism with the cause of Christ. Satan now had twisted them and was using them actively against the body of Christ to inject deception into the church. Now, why is deception such a big deal? Do you remember last week's text that Lloyd preached about how they were all in one heart and one soul? Do you know the number one way to break unity? Deception, lies, dishonesty. That'll break trust in a heartbeat. You see, Satan's directly trying to counteract the momentum of the church, okay? Yet, I also want to add, it's clear from the text, that Ananias was not just a pawn. In other words, Satan was using him, but the only way Satan could use him, and this is true for us too, the only way Satan could use us to disrupt something in the cause of Christ is if we are at some level willing participants. We might be unconsciously aligning ourselves with the enemy of God, but we have to let down our guard. We have to step into sin in some way because Satan has no power over us, no control over us, unless or until we cooperate with that cause. So look real quickly at, at verse 4. Peter's going to call out this very thing. Ananias, you're not just a pawn here. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you did not even have to sell it. No one made you sell it. After it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, you could have kept the money. You didn't have to give any of it away. Or you could have just given 10% and kept 90. That would have been great. That would have been fine. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. And so you see in verses 3 and 4 this tension between there, there's the Holy Spirit involved, there's Satan involved, but at the conscious level of Ananias and Sapphira, that, that, that's all invisible to them, right? All they think is going on is their own sin. The sin in their lives was playing out in the context of a cosmic spiritual war. Why do we think our sin's any different? 
Why do we think that God wouldn't want to use, or, or sorry, Satan wouldn't want to use the sin in our lives, the vulnerabilities in our lives, the temptations in our lives to, to break up something good, to, to, to harm a family, to harm a marriage, to harm a body of Christ, to harm a, a parent-child relationship, to harm our witness, you see. Why would Satan not want to? Of course he does. Of course he does. He is actively doing that. Now, if you follow me through lesson number one, that the, the sin here is playing out in a, in a cosmic, great cosmic spiritual war, you, you start to understand a little bit more, maybe, maybe, why God responded as sharply as he did. Because if there's been a cancer of deception that's been injected into the church, what's the loving thing for, for the father to do for the sake of the body of his son Jesus is to cut out the cancer. Now, you may say, you know, hold on a minute. That's not fair to Ananias and Sapphira, right? No one's perfect, and you're right. I also want you to think, if you, if you put on the lenses of your, the spiritual reality that's going on here, and I don't mean to, to demean the harshness of physical death, but I will say this from the perspective of Ananias and Sapphira, assuming they truly were followers of Jesus, which there's no indication in the text that they weren't actually true part of the church, then their experience was to go immediately from the shock of being exposed into the presence of God now where there is grace and forgiveness because of their faith in Christ. And so there's a little bit of controversy about whether Ananias and Sapphira were true believers. I see no evidence that they weren't true believers. It doesn't say in the text that you know, they were false you know, people that, that, that had kind of been like spies and kind of like pretended to be followers of Jesus. No, I think these were believers in Jesus who had a vulnerability that Satan exploited. God said, I'm going to put you two who have now become accidental weapons of my enemy, I'm going to put you someplace where he can no longer touch you anymore. I'm taking you home. I'm putting you with me. Now, I, I don't think that explains away all the difficulty of the text, but I think it gets us going in the right direction to kind of put on these lenses of something greater than just our own human, physical, fleshly reality that we think of when we read a text like this. All right, that's lesson number one. The sin in our lives plays out in the context of a cosmic spiritual war. And, you know, and, and by the way, I, I think that we have to apply this to ourselves and realize that your sin, my sin, affects more than just ourselves. There's no way you can say that your sin doesn't harm other believers in Christ, your, your wife, your kids, your neighbors, this body, your witness in the community. You know, there's no sin that's just private. There's no sin that's just personal. There's something greater going on behind the scenes, and Peter is calling this out. All right. Second lesson. This is a big one. They're, they're all big ones. You know, as I wrestled through these lessons, like I was preaching to myself, you know, all, the whole time. Trust me. Number two. Deception is at the center of every temptation. Deception is at the center of every temptation. Uh, don't gloss over the fact that Peter's emphasis was the lie. Right? He didn't go after the greed. He didn't go after the selfishness or you know, the pride that made them want to look like Barnabas. He went straight to the lie. Again, verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Who's he lying to? The Holy Spirit. Verse 4, you've not lied to men but to God. Verse 7, this is Peter now talking to Sapphira, the wife. Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? You even think that you can lie to the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the lie, it's the lie, it's the lie. No accident. 
no accident, because behind every temptation, I'd, I'd say behind every sin, there's deception. Um, where are we getting this from? Well, Satan is described over and over and over again as the great deceiver, right? In fact, you know, Jesus in uh, John eight forty four calls him the father of lies. You know, Jesus actually says, you know, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Think about that metaphor, literally, the father of lies. He, he, he conceived every lie that's ever been told. Like he, he, he's the, the ancestor of all deception. You see, he was the first liar. He is the father of all lies. Um, think about the, uh, the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Satan, in the form of a servant, comes to Eve. What does he do? He lies. He twists the words of God. Like, God didn't really say what you think he said. You know? Lies. Think about his uh, temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. What does he do? Three times he comes to Jesus, and every single time he lies. He takes scripture even and twists it. Right? He, in, in, he quotes it out of context. He misinterprets it just a little bit, just, just so it has a hint of untruth to it. And, and don't miss how Jesus responds every time to the temptation. Not with willpower, but with truth. Right? Every single time. Jesus doesn't just say, Satan, I'm stronger than you, so back away. No, what does Jesus say? He says, it is written. And then he quotes a verse properly, in right context, with truth. So the way that you counter deception, the way that you counter lies, is not with willpower, it's with truth. Right? That's the antidote to the deception. And so it's always true that deception is at the center of every temptation and sin. I, I want to challenge you to kind of dig into the, the sin areas that you struggle with in your own life and say, what's the lie underneath the sin that I'm believing? Let me give you some examples. Um, I, I picked some that none of us in the room struggle with, I'm sure. <laughs> Certainly not me, right? Yeah, right. Uh, what's the deception underneath the sin of greed? Okay, let's just start there. It's relevant to the text, but it, but it also is relevant to our context. Okay, what's the deception underneath the sin of greed? Is it not the lie that you need more in order to be whole? In order to feel content, to feel satisfied, to have your needs met, to have fun, to have, you know, if, if only I just this a little more, if I was just like them, if I just had, you know, whatever it is, if I had a job that I loved, if I had a, a house that was a little bigger, if I had a boat, if I had some more toys, whatever it is, you need more in order to be whole. Men and women, that's a lie. But you've been deceived. What is the deception underneath the sin of anger? All right, none, none of us struggle with anger ever. Um, here I think that there's a couple lies under this one number one the lie is that you have the right to be treated in a certain way right and so someone's violated your right and so you, 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 guys that's actually a lie like we deserve nothing but we've been giving, given everything through Christ you see that's the truth but the lie is, man, you, you violated my rights and I'm going to be angry about it. There's a second lie underneath the sin of anger and that is somehow that you being angry about this and you kind of holding a grudge or just kind of fuming inside or just kind of letting it build up, that that is actually going to help you. That that's actually going to make the pain that you feel because of your shallow emptiness that you're struggling with, that your anger will somehow be a salve to sort of soothe and calm that it doesn't it makes it worse you've been deceived what about the sin of lust 
Okay, it's another one that, that nobody, nobody struggles with. Yeah, right. What's the deception? And this could be any kind of lust, right? For, for you know, lust for or an individual or lust for a, a thing or an object or even food. What's the deception underneath the sin of lust that the man or the woman or the object that you desire will fill your hunger and satisfy you? It will not. It just makes you more hungry. And so you crave more and more and more and more and more. It's like you, you, you're trying to fill a hole by digging deeper and deeper and deeper. There's deception underneath the sin of lust. Last one, what's the deception underneath the sin of pride? Another very common sin. The deception is that you need to place other people beneath you in order for you to feel approved or accepted. So it's kind of like, man, I, I've got to be just a little smarter than you. I've got to be just a little bit more together than you. I've got to be a little cooler, a little bit better dressed, you know. I've got to be a little more wealthy. I, maybe I've just got to be a little more better than you, a little more righteous than you. And, I, and I'm going to put myself just barely, just above you a little bit. Why do I feel the need to do that? It's because I feel shallow inside. And, and I think that I have this need to be above, you see. It's a lie. You've been deceived. Satan operates in the realm of deception. Men and women, it's the only tool that he has. Lies are it, man. That's all he's got. And so where is freedom in the area of your temptation? It's found in the truth. John 8, 31, 32. If you continue in my word, Jesus says, you're truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will finish it for me. Set you free, right? Discipline's not gonna set you free. Willpower's not gonna set you free. Those, those are good. They have their place. But they're not going to set you free. What's going to set you free? Truth. This is why we teach the Word of God, why we do every Sunday. This is why we have you encourage you to be in small groups, opening God's Word together. This is why we encourage you to read God's Word on your own. This is truth here. You need it. You're starving for truth because you live in a context of deception. Now, I want to finish out this lesson by just saying one more thing. And the lesson's this. Deception is at the center of every temptation and sin. Every man and woman in this room struggles with some form of temptation and sin. We just do. And for most of us, you know, it's like it takes more than two hands to count the different ones or something. Here, here's the homework assignment for you. You know, if you think about this, is think about the areas of sin you struggle with and ask yourself, what's the lie underneath the temptation that I'm believing? And then what's the truth from God's word to counteract that lie? And I've already given you some examples, but there's a very uh, practical way that you can begin to put this text into practice because deception is at the core of every sin. This is true for Ananias and Sapphira. This is also true for us. One more lesson. This is a heavy one, not that the other ones were light. Uh, Lesson number three, the destination of sin is always death. The, the, The end point of sin, the destination of sin is always death. Uh, this is true about literal physical death, and, and, but it goes much beyond that as well. Let me unpack this a little bit. Let's start with a physical, uh, literal physical death. Um, think about God's original creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Death had no place. All right? Nothing was dying in the garden before sin came into the world. And, and what God said to Adam and Eve is, he said, listen, there, there's, one, there's one thing I don't want you to do here. And I don't want you to eat this. And he gave them the reason why he didn't want them to eat this fruit he says you must not eat of it or you will surely die 
You see, he, doesn't, he didn't want him to die. You see, death was meant to be outside of God's original intent for his creation. Sin brought death into the earth and has been doing it ever since. Fast forward to Ananias and Sapphira. Um, if they had a death certificate, you know, I don't think they had those back then. But if they did, what would have been written on their death certificate? You know, name, uh, uh, Ananias, uh, date of birth, whatever. Date of death, you know, eighty thirty three, you know, thereabouts. Uh, cause of death. Sin. Sin, you see. So we look at this example and we're like, dang, man. Like, like they sinned and they died. You too. You too. You will die someday unless Jesus comes back first. You, you will. You will. It, it, could be in, in, it could be 2018. could be your year. You might have 30, 40, 50, 60 more years. I don't know. But you will die. It is your destiny. Why? Because of sin, you see. Sin entered God's creation and, led, and, and still does lead to death. Now, I've got to say something very important, okay? Lest I really mess up some theologies in the room. I am not saying that every physical death has a direct correlation to some specific sin in that person's life. I am not saying that at all. I'm talking at big picture, general theological terms. There was no death in creation until sin entered the world. From that point on, decay and death is the norm, not the exception. No one escapes it. So don't, don't start thinking about, man, you know, when, when my grandmother died a couple of years ago, what was the sin in her life that caused her death? Don't go there. The, the, the world is under a curse, right? Disease is a part of it. Accidents are a part of it. All these things are a part of the groaning of creation that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. But the point is this. There is no sin that's not a part of this death train, so to speak. Now, this is not just true of physical death, but think about all other kinds of death. These deaths you can connect to more specific sins. Let me explain. How about the death of innocence? All right, all of us in the room, at some point in time, your innocence was stolen away through sin, either someone else's sin or your own sin. How about the death of trust in any relationship, any marriage, any parent-child relationship? There's a death of trust when sin enters the picture, death of integrity, death of an opportunity. You ever heard that saying, man, you know, he had, he had so much ahead of him and he squandered it all. By choosing the wrong path. The death of an opportunity. Death of a promise made. You know, death of a, of a relationship. De- death of, of an intimacy. Death of a, of a family unit that's broken apart by sin of all kinds. And, and, and men and women, we have to open our eyes and realize there is no sin that does not have the scent of death associated with it. There's None. Listen to James talk about this in James chapter 1. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their evil desire and enticed. And then he's going to paint this incredible metaphor. And you follow this as I read it. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown up, gives birth to death. You see that the chain reactions, desire is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin is always going to terminate in death. It always will. Not just literal death, that's the big picture theology, but these individual little deaths as well. Some of you men, some of you women, you are literally wrecking relationships in your life through an area of sin that you think is private. 
And what's really going on, it, it, it is squeezing out your vitality and creating in you even some unconscious responses to people around you who care about you and that you care about. And there is something that is dying. Application number two, I would encourage all of us, especially those of us that have some areas in our life that we just need to open our eyes to and get serious about. I encourage everybody to look around your life and note what in my life used to be alive that is now dying or dead. And I guarantee there will be sin connected, either your sin or someone else's. What in my life that used to be alive is now dying slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, but don't miss the clear point of the passage. Sin always leads to death. And, and I think that's the biggest landing point in this text because I think the power of sin for us is that the cost of sin is not always immediately apparent. And so what God did, what he gifted to the church through this very hard passage is he says, I'm going to make it as clear as day. Sin leads to death. Did, did you miss it? Pay attention. Three hours later, here you go again, you see. Sin leads to death, you see. The response of the people is appropriate. Reverential fear. Sin is not something to mess around with. It never has been. It still isn't to this day. And so for us, here we are, 2017, November, you know, happy Thanksgiving, you know, welcome back to church. And, and, and here we are in, in, in the thick of this, right? I think the work of the Spirit, because I believe that the Spirit is actually working through the text as it's preached, as it's studied, as it's read in all different contexts, the Spirit's on the move, right? The work of the Spirit is the same work of the Spirit in the original context. That's always the case. It's true here as well. What would it be? Take sin seriously. The sin around you, the sin in your own life, take it seriously. Many of us have lost sight of the sure connection between sin and death. Sin leads to death. Sin and death. Sin leads to death. I plead with you, for your own sake, for the sake of those who love you, for the sake of the people that you do love, turn, turn, repent. It's time to recognize the deception. Come back to our senses. How do you do that? Well, Rob, you might say, I've gone too far. Like, if you know, like, what I was into or what I've done or what I can't let go and I've, I've asked for forgiveness and it's still there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What, what, what do you do? Number one, if you haven't yet, you need to be honest before God. Right? No more deception. Like, no, no more lying to the Holy Spirit that you can come to church on Sunday and everything's just good. And then you got to be honest before God, Right? Now, here's the good news about being honest before God. I challenge you anywhere in the scripture to find a man or a woman that was honest before God about their sin where they did not receive grace and mercy. Be honest before God about your sin. And then the second thing to do is to ask for help. And I think your ask for help needs to go vertically. And it, it, for many of you, it needs to go horizontally as well. You know, vertically is the easy part. It's like, God, you know, let me lay my, my, my depravity before you and my struggle before you. Help me, God. Like, start there. Start there. And then let that build the courage to, to go to a, a brother or sister that you trust or that you're willing to take a risk with and say, I, I, I need help. I don't even know what this will look like, but, but, but can you help me? I, I need some help. 
I need some help. This is why we need to be in community with one another, why, why men need to be getting together with men, and women need to be together with women, and, and, and fellowship groups need to be coming together and just being honest. Our, our marriage is struggling. Or, you know, we're, honestly, we, we've seen some areas of, of our lives that we need to be honest about. And, and sometimes it is easier to do that with friends of the same gender. But find people that you can not just be honest before God, but also be honest in community and ask for help. So here's where I want to land. I I will leave you with hope, okay? Because this text will never leave you without hope. Just as the scripture is clear that sin always leads to death, it's just as clear that Jesus came for the purpose of resurrection. John 10.10 Jesus says, the thief, talking about Satan, comes to steal, kill, destroy. But, contrast word, I have come that they may have, what's the opposite of death? Life. What kind of life? Abundant, like overflowing life. Now, what does abundant, overflowing fullness of life mean? We don't have time to unpack it all, but I'll tell you this. It is the exact opposite of death. So what does abundant life look like in a marriage, in a family, in personal relationships, in a witness to the community, in a group of friends where relationships are broken, in family relationships? What does abundance of life look there? It's going to be the reconciliation, the piecing back together of things that were dying, the resurrection of something that's been dead. You see, all this is possible because of the third day. If there was no third day, I could not leave you with hope. I would say, try harder against your sin because it's killing you. But I don't leave you there this morning. I say, put your faith in Jesus in your sin because he only has the scent of life about him. A step closer to Christ is always a step closer to life. It is always the undoing of things that are dying. It is always resurrection-oriented. That's the step you're making when you take a step toward Christ. And that starts with being honest with God about your sin and asking for help. So I want to pray for us. In fact, I'm going to ask uh, Tim and Josh if they'd come up because we're, we're going to close in a song in a minute. But I'm going to pray for us first. And I'm just going to give you a little space because I know this is a heavy message. I'm going to give you a little space in the prayer to do those two things. Privately, personally, you're not, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot at all. This is just between you and God. Be honest with him about your sin and ask for help. That's what we're going to do. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, the weight of this scripture passage has fallen heavy over us. I believe that is your will. I believe that is the work of the text, the work of the Spirit on the move. And so, Father, I actually do pray for conviction. I do pray that by your Spirit you would bring about a mindset of seriousness, of sobriety, that there'd be men and women in this room and young men and women and boys and girls that would would actually start taking very seriously the sin in their lives to recognize that that actually has the scent of death to it. And, And it may not directly lead to my own literal death, but there is no sin that does not lead to death in some way, shape, or form. And so, Father, first of all, we just ask you to hear our honest confession 
And I know, Father, that you receive these with gladness because there's nothing that will be spoken to you in the quietness of this moment that you don't already know. And you're just waiting to be able to speak to us about it. So congregation, right now, just take a moment and be honest before God about areas of sin in your own life.